Mary Slusser of Calabar, Pioneer Missionary by W.P. Livingston. Chapter 5 A Bush Furlough. She at last determined to give up her furlough in Scotland, now drawing near, and spend the time instead in prospecting in the new country. All her hopes and aims were expressed in a definite and formal way in the following document which she sent to be read at the November meeting of the committee, now the Mission Council at Calabar. I think it is an open secret that, for many years, the workers have felt that our methods and modes were very far from adequate to overtake the needs of our immense field, and as the opportunities multiply and the needs grow more, the question grows in importance and gravity. The fact that only by stated consecutive work can a church be evolved and built up and a pagan nation be molded into a Christian people cannot be gainsaid. And yet there is an essential need for something between, something more mobile and flexible than ordinary congregational work and methods. The scattered, broken units into which our African populations are divided, their various jujus and superstitions which segregate even the houses of any common village, make it necessary for us to do more than merely pay an occasional visit, even if that visit results in a church or a school being built. Many plans suggest themselves. Church members organize into bands of two or three or four to itinerant for a week over local neighborhoods. Native teachers spending a given number of days in each month in the outlying parts of their districts. Trading members of the church undertaking service in any humble capacity on upriver trading stations. In these and many other ways, the gaps might be bridged, and a chain of personal interest and living sympathy link on the raw heathen to the church centers. And the first rays of gospel light be conveyed and communicated, be opened without the material expense which the opening of new stations involves. For instance, I have spent a Sabbath at Uman, and ever so many Efik traders, men and women, joined at the congregational worship, reading from Bibles and hymn books which had been locked in their boxes, but either timidity or some other cause kept them silent when there was no one to lead. Could not a beginning be made for those? either by initiating such a service or organizing those who were trading at any place, so the evening worship or some other simple way of bringing gospel truth before the minds of the heathen could go on continuously? The same holds good for Aitu and other places. For the last decade, the nearer reaches of the river on which we ply have occupied a great deal of my thoughts, but from various causes no sort of supervision at all adequate suggested themselves. So there has been little definite work accomplished, a few readers at Odat, teaching at Ikai, and the back of Aitu and Uman, covers it all, I fear. With Miss Wright's coming, opportunities, not of our personal seeking, have forced themselves on us, and though we have done the best we could with the materials at hand, all seems so little and incomplete that the following proposal, or petition, or request, or whatever you may term it, has been prepared, and that from no mere impulse of the moment, but after careful, prayerful consideration, I may say here that Miss Wright is full in sympathy with it and it is from both of us. By the 2nd, January 1904, I shall have been out five years, and so my furlough would then be due. But as I have not the slightest intention of going to Britain, I am thankful to say I do not feel any necessity for doing so, I propose to ask leave from the station for six months, during which time I should, in a very easy way, try to keep up an informal system of itinerating between Okiang and Amazu. Already I have seen a church and dwelling house built at Aitu, and a church and couple of rooms at Amazu. I have visited several towns of Inyong in the creek, and have found good enough accommodation, as there are similar European houses available and open for a lodging. 
I shall find my own canoe and crew, and shall stay at any given a place any length of time which the circumstances suggest, so as not to tax my own strength, and the members of my own family shall help in the elementary teaching in the schools. From our home here we shall thus superintend the small school at Idot, and start in a small way work at Ikai, and reside mostly at Aitu as the base, working the creek where the Inyong towns are on the way to the further base at Amazu. Reside there, or itinerate from there among the Aero people in an easy way, and again back by creek and I to home. What I have to ask of you is that, in order to do this, a lady be sent out to be with Miss Wright. The latter is perfectly capable of attending to the station. The school and dispensary work are already in her hands, and with someone to help her I have not the slightest hesitation in leaving her in charge. Both ladies could cooperate in the travelling as choice or circumstances pointed and as Miss Wright has had a large share in the formation and equipment of the I-2 and Aero stations, it would be very natural that she should take some part in developing them, as might suggest itself to her. The three of us, I have no doubt, could dovetail the details of the work so that no part should suffer, nor should any special strain be put on her health. We should like this to take shape at the end of the year, as the people will be more get will be more gettable in their villages in such a visitation kind of way than in the ordinary church methods during the dry season. All work in towns is slack then, and village and visitation work have their proper value. In proposing this, I know I am going in the very face of what seems to be the only possible way of dividing our stations. My own desire is to have a missionary with his wife and a native teacher take over Okiyang, congregate the educated and at least nominal Christian part of our community and build up a church in the ordinary way. He has more than he can undertake to work upon in Okiyang alone, and he has endless scope for extension up between the rivers, toward Yugep and Idi Aiba. It may be out of my province to speak of anything outside my own station, but in as far as I know, I am voicing the opinion of the missionaries who are now working up higher. I may say that if we are to compass the people that lie at our hands, such as Aitu, Inyong, Uman, and those who may be reached all the year round, we ought to have Aitu manned as a proper European station. All and each of these peoples can be reached and worked from Aitu. Then, as a natural and strategic point in the business conduct of our mission, Aitu is incomparable. It was not without reason that it was the slave market, and that it became the government base for all the work both for north and flank. The gateway to the arrows and the Ibibos, holding the Inyong, and being just a day's journey from that, from what must ever be our base, namely the seaport of ocean steamers, having waterway all the year round, and a good beachfront, it is the natural point, I think, at which our up-and-down river work should converge. But I am willing to change, and Miss Wright is willing to change, any plan of ours in order to let any larger undertaking make way if it should be proposed. This communication was considered and various proposals made, but the finding of the council was that they were unable to accept the whole responsibility of the scheme, and that the matter should be forwarded to the Women's Committee in Scotland, and Miss Lesser asked to wait their decision. The question of further development was, however, discussed, and the unanimous opinion was that I too should be adopted as a medical station in view of extension into the Arrow country. Miss Lesser was not discouraged. She next asked Mr. Wilkie to come and see the nature of the ground for himself and the possibilities it held, and the result was a New Year trip up the creek, the party consisting of Mr. and Mrs. Wilkie, Miss Wright, and herself. She was far from well, far more unwell than ever Miss Wright was aware of, but she nevertheless resolved to go and was conveyed to Aikunitu in a hammock. At Aitu they camped at the church and house, neither of which was yet finished, the doors being temporary erections and the windows being screened by grass mats. 
Mrs. Wilkie's camp bed occupied one end of the church, Miss Wright's the center, whilst at the other end, Miss Slusser's native sofa, was placed with mats rounded for the children. Mr. Wilkie found a resting place in one of the native houses in the town. Military operations were still progressing, and there was a camp of soldiers at the foot of the hill, whose presence terrified the people, and they besought the missionaries to remain for their protection until the men moved on, and this they did. Colonel Montenero, who arrived later, called the ladies and had a long talk with Mary, to whom he expressed his delight at the result of his invitation to Eruchaku. These men, she wrote, are held by invisible but strong bands to what is good, though outsiders do not see it. All the way up the creek they were obliged to pass the night at Akani Obayo, where Chief Onoyam came down to the beach and escorted them to his house, and gave them all the room they required. Two courts lit by European lamps and new mats. His fine face and courteous manners made the same impression on the strangers as they had done on Miss Lesser. It was found that the native teacher had been doing his best, but the chief was keen for all the advantages of a station, and was relying upon Ma's word to assist him. Next morning they again took to the canoe, but the water became so shallow that they had to land and tramp six miles to Amazu, passing the trenches where the natives sought to ambush the punitive force. New roads were being constructed everywhere, and barracks had been erected on a wind-swept hill in the neighborhood. The church was built near the creek, and was still incomplete. As there was no house, they had camped in the church as best they could, Mrs. Wilkie sleeping on a mud seat. The district, including the scene of the long juju, was inspected, and the people interviewed, and the party returned as they had come. They stopped at several villages, in one of the which an old chief brought out a box containing Bibles and a pilgrim's progress in reading books. I had a son, he said. I was fond of him, and he was anxious to learn book and God Palavars. And I bought these books, and got someone to teach him, and was looking forward to my son becoming a great man, and teaching the people good ways. But two moons ago he died, and I have no more heart for anything. I want God, he continued fiercely, and you won't leave me till I find him. Oh, father, replied Mary, God is here. He is waiting for you. The chief found God became a Christian. Chapter 6 Beginnings Miss Lesser's indomitable spirit never gave in, but her body sometimes did. She'd been suffering much these past months from weakening ailments brought on by the results of exposure and lack of nourishing food, and she finally collapsed and was again far away in the dark valley. But kind hands ministered to her and nursed her back to health. I rose, she said, a mere wreck of what I was and I was not much at the best. My hair is silvered enough to please anyone now, and I am nervous and easily knocked up, and so rheumatic that I cannot get up or down without pain. She was gladdened by the news that the mission council had given her permission to make her proposed tour, and was not troubled by the condition that, that she must not commit the mission to extension. The council thought that in view of her illness she ought rather to go home, and offered to provide for the work at Akpep, and care for her children until she returned. But the burden of the creek lay sore on her mind, and as Miss Wright's furlough was also due, she wished to be near Akpep in case of her need. She informed the council that if she might be relieved, she would begin her tour at once. When Miss Wright left, she gave more into the hands of Jean, who, she said, was as good as any white servant, her right hand and her left. When the matter once more came up at the council, it was decided to send up two ladies to Akpep, and she was at last free to carry out her desire. She looked forward to the enterprise with mingled feelings. It seemed strange, she said, to be starting with a family on a gypsy life in a canoe, but God will take care of us. Whether I shall find his place for me upriver, or whether I shall come back to my own people again, I do not know. He knows, and that is enough. 
Perhaps the most remarkable feature of this new forward movement was that she was going at her own expense, backed by the private liberality of friends in Scotland, and assisted by native girls and boys who received nothing from her but their board. She never asked the mission to defray any of the expenditures which she incurred, and the building was accomplished by herself and household with the free labor of the people. All that the opening up of the Eon Creek to the gospel cost the mission was her salary, which is now one hundred pounds per annum. She spent scarcely anything of this on her own personal wants. I have no object on earth, she wrote at this time, but to get my food and raiment, which are the plainest, and to bring up my barons. A certain amount was reserved at home by Mr. Logie, who after all these years had managed her affairs, and even this she was always encroaching upon. Whenever she saw an appeal in the press for any good object, she would write to him and request him to send a contribution. There were many matters to be attended to before she left Akpap, and she went down to Duketown to hand over the business of the native court and buy material for the buildings in the creek. It was the first time for many years that she had been on Mission Hill, and she greatly enjoyed her stay with the Wilkies, in whose home she was always able to find quietness and comfort. The old people who knew the early pioneers of the mission flocked to see her, and her sojourn was one long reception. A command invitation also came from the commissioner, but this she had to decline, saying that she was not visiting. It is doubtful whether she had the attire fit for the occasion. He, however, came to see her, and was charmed with her personality. It was on this visit that she brought another of the younger missionaries under her spell, the Reverend J.K. McGregor, B.D., principal of the Hope Waddell Institute. After his first meeting, he wrote, A slim figure of middle height, fine eyes full of power. She is no ordinary woman. It was wonderful to sit and listen to her talking for she is most fascinating, and besides being a humorist, is a mine of information on mission history and Efic custom. Mr. and Mrs. McGregor grew into intimate friends, and their home, like that of the Wilkies, thereafter became a haven of healing and rest. She reached her base, I too, with her family in July, her health still enfeebled, but her spirit burning like a pure fire, and established herself in a house that was still unfurnished. What a picture it presented, writes a government doctor who visited her there, a native house with a few of the barest necessities of furniture. She was sitting on a chair rocking a tiny baby, while five others were quietly sleeping, wrapped up in bits of brown paper and newspapers in other parts of the room. How she managed to look after all these children, and to do the colossal work she did, is beyond comprehension. The joy of the people at her advent, boundless. Her barons had done wonders. The congregation number 350, all devout, intelligent people. Today, she wrote... As the custom is after the lesson, the barons each took a part in the prayer, and before we rose, a boy started, Come, Holy Spirit, come. We sang it through on our knees. But calls came every day from other regions. A deputation from the interior of Ibibo pled, Give us even a boy. Another wrote a message from a chief in the creek, It is not book that I want, it is God. The chief of Aikino Obayo again came. Ma, he said, we have three pounds in hand for a teacher and some of the boys are finished with the books Mr. Welke gave them, and are at a standstill. And most pathetic of all, one night late, while she was reading by the light of a candle, a blaze of light shone through the cracks of the house, and fifteen young men from Okiang appeared before her to say that the young ladies who had come to Akpap had already gone, and they were left without a ma. She sent them to a shelter for the night, and spent the hours in prayer. Oh, Britain, she exclaimed, surfeited with privilege, tired of Sabbath and church, would that you could send over to us what you were throwing away. Invited to the mission council in November 1904, she went, this being her first attendance for six years, and gave what the minutes called a graphic and interesting account of what had been accomplished. An eye to a church and teacher's house had been built, there were regular Sabbath services, and a day school was conducted. 
at Amazu, or Achaku, a good school was built, and grounds had been given by the chiefs. There was also the beginnings of the congregation and buildings at four points in the creek, at Okpo, Akana Obayo, Odat, and Eseng. The work, she said, had not yet reached a stage when and she could conscientiously leave it, but she hoped before departing to see established such a native self-supporting agency under the control of the mission as would guarantee a continuance of the enterprise. The council received her report with thankfulness and gave her permission to continue for other six months on the same condition as before, that no expense to the mission should be involved in what she undertook. Many months of strenuous upbuilding followed, constantly interrupted by petty illnesses of a depressing kind. The house at Aitu was completed, and she herself lay down a cement floor, and Jean whitewashing the walls. Cement underfoot, for many reasons, was preferred, one being that it was impervious to ants. If these pests obtained hold of a house, it was difficult to drive them out, and many a night her entire family was up waging battle with them. In connection with her supplies of cement, she once picked up at Aikunitu some of her colleagues, who remarked to the number of trunks which accompanied her. "'You were surely richer than usual in household gear,' they said." "'Household gear,' she echoed. "'These are filled with cement. I have nothing else to bring it in.' Once in Scotland, a woman asked her if she had any lessons in making cement. "'No,' she replied. "'I just stir it like porridge, turn it out, smooth it with a stick, and all the time keep praying, "'Lord, here's the cement, if to thy glory, set it.' And it has never once gone wrong. A picture of the days at this time is supplied by Mrs. Welsh. We visited the women in their homes. We had evening prayers in such yards as the owners were willing to allow them. From morning till night, Ma was busy.' often far into the night. One brought a story of an unjust divorce, another was sick, one brought in a primer for a reading lesson, another was accused of debt, and wished Ma to vouch for his innocence. Another had, he declared, been cheated in a land case. All found a ready listener, a friendly adviser and helper, though all did not find their protestations of innocence believed in, and none went away without hearing of the salvation God had prepared for them. The oak young people continued to come to her with their troubles. They seemed to think, she says, that no one can settle their affairs but this old lady. Rescues of twin children were also going on all this time. She could not now rush off as she used to do when the news arrived, but she sent Jean flying to the spot. Infants would be seized and the excited people held in check until she came on the scene. One more woman spoilt, she would say, and another home broken up. Nothing gave her greater joy than the, than the rapid development going on at Ikanai Obayo. Chief Onoyom had ever swerved from his determination to Christianize his people, and although knowing practically nothing of the white man's religion, had already started to build a church, using for the purpose 800 pounds which he had saved. At first he planned a native building, but reflecting that if he was constructing a house for himself it would be of iron, he felt he could not do less for God. He therefore decided to put up as fine a structure as he could, with the walls of iron and cement floor and a bell tower. To make the seats and pulpit, he had the courage to use a magnificent tree, which was regarded as the principal juju of the town. The story goes that the people declared the juju would never permit it to be cut down. God is stronger than juju, said Onoyam, and went out with a following to attack it. They did not succeed the first day, and the people were jubilant. Next morning they returned, and knelt down and prayed that God would show himself stronger than juju, and then, hacking at the tree with increased vigor, they soon brought it to earth. That the people might have no excuse for absenting themselves from the services during the wet season, Onoyam also erected a bridge over the creek for their use. To the dedication of the building came a reverend, well-dressed assembly. The chief himself was attired in a black suit, with black silk necktie and soft felt hat. He provided food for the entire gathering, would not allow anything stronger than palm wine to be drunk. Very shyly he came up to Ma and offered her a handful of money, asking her to buy provisions for herself, as he did not know what kind she liked. Two short years before, the place and people had been known only to traitors. 
Up in Arachaku, similar progress was being made. Her first long stay there, spent in a hut without furniture, with not even a chair to sit on, was a happy one. She was busily engaged in erecting a schoolhouse with two rooms at the back. Little did I dream, she wrote, that I would mud walls and hang doors again. But the creek is at the back door, and we have bathing in the sunshine, and it is a delightful holiday. The earlier meetings were held in the open. The chiefs sat on improvised seats, principal women, clothed and unclothed, squatted on skins or mats on the ground, lads and children stood about, the town people cupped well back amongst the protecting foliage. In the center, in the shade of a giant tree, was a table covered with a fine white cloth, and upon it a Bible and a native primer. Here she stood to conduct the service, so strange to the native people. As she began, there was a stir at the side, and a big chief, one of the principal traders to Okiyang in former days, moved into the circle, along with his head wife. He was followed by another and his children, and then others appeared until she had a great audience. She could scarcely command her voice. To gain time, she asked the chief to begin with prayer in the Ibo tongue. All knelt. A hymn followed, and there was not the least semblance of a tune, all joining in anyhow, but sweeter music she had never heard. The Ten Commandments were translated, sentence by sentence, by a chief, who as were also the lessons in the address. Another hymn was sung, then came a prayer by an old man, and another by a woman, and the meeting closed with all repeating the Lord's Prayer. It was the same as at the towns and villages along the creek. Churches or schools were going up and congregations being formed. The notable thing was that women were taking a prominent part in the meetings. This, no doubt, was due to the fact that pioneer missionary was a woman, and the cry from all the districts was for women, and not men, a white ma to teach our women book washing and machine. In July, Mr. McGregor was able to visit the infant stations and was greatly impressed. To him, the journey up creek was a new experience. As the canoe pushed its way through the water lilies, the Institute boys sang Scottish psalms to the tunes Invocation and St. George's, much to Mary's delight. It's a long time since I heard these, she exclaimed. It puts me in fine key for Sabbath. At a sang, she translated Mr. McGregor's sermon to a gathering of 300 people. Her interpretation, he says, was most dramatic. She gave the address far more fierce and epic than it had in English. It was magnificent, and how the people listened. He had the opportunity here of seeing how deftly she handled a bad native. Don't come to God's house, she ended. God has no need of the likes of you with your deceit and craft. He can get on quite well without you, though you can't get on without God. Aye, you have that lesson to learn yet. At Arachaku, it happened to be Igbo Day and the place was astir with naked people, who came and stared at them as they ate. One man, who was dressed in a hat, a loincloth, and a walking stick, sat in a corner and received a lecture from Ma, which lasted the whole meal. They explored the district, saw the trees where criminals were hanged after terrible torture, the old juju house with its quaint carvings and relics of sacrifices, the new palavar shed of beaten mud, and the great slave road into the interior. At one spot she stopped and exclaimed, That was the road to the devil. It was the path to the long juju of bloody memory. They returned by the new road through the Icot Imbium, the accursed burst into which the sick and dying slaves were flung when their days of useful service was over. At the first, the people would not use this road, but now the land was laid out in farms and cultivations, a tribute to the influence of British rule. On the voyage down, there was frequent showers in the creek, and Mary sat with a waterproof over her head and shoulders, a strange figure, but with a face glowing with spirit. When the inn was in sight, she proposed that they should sing the doxology, and none offering to accompany her, she sang it herself, twice. In the quiet of the tropic nights, she read the books and magazines and papers which people sent her, and in this way kept abreast of world affairs. Her favorite journals were the British Weekly, the Christian, the Life of Faith, and the Westminster Gazette. Her record she read from cover to cover. It was with painful interest that she followed at this time the development of the great church crisis in the homeland. 
It tears my heart, she wrote, to see our beloved church dragged in and through the mire of public opinion. But she had faith a good issue would come out of it all. A keen politician, she thirsted for election telegrams during periods of parliamentary transition. But in all times of public unrest and excitement, she fell back on the thought that God was on his throne, and all was well. Chapter 7. Moving Inland Ibo or Ibibo? Which was it to be? Both regions were calling to her, and both attracted her. As a result of an arrangement with the Church Missionary Society, the administrative districts adjoining the Cross River were recognized as the sphere of the United Free Church Mission. And now that this is settled, she wrote, I should try to make a firmer hold in Arachaco. The church there is almost finished. My heart bleeds for the people, but the spirit has not yet suffered me to go. The dark masses behind her at Aitu drew her sympathies even more, simply because they were lower in the scale of humanity. It is a huge country, and if I go in, I can only touch a small part of it, but it would be criminal to monopolize the rights of occupation and not be able to occupy. Her line of advance was practically determined by the government. Even with military operations still going on, a marvelous change was being effected in the condition of Abibo. The country was being rapidly opened up. Roads were being pushed forward and courts established. The stir and the promise of new life was pulsating from end to end of the land. To her hut at Aitu came government and trade experts, consulting her on all manner of subjects and obtaining information which no other one could supply. The natives, on the other hand, came to her inquiring as to the means of the white man's movements, and she was able to reassure them and keep their confidence unshaken in the beneficial character of the changes. She made rapid reconnaissance inland, and these set her planning extension. Even the officials urged her to enter. They pointed the road. Get a bicycle, Ma, they said, and come as far as you can. We will soon have a motor car service for you. Motors? And Ibibo? The idea to her was incredible, but in a few months it was realized. Come on to Akat Okpen, wrote the officer at that distant center. The road is going through, and you'll be the first here. She thought of these men, their privations, and their enthusiasm for empire. Oh, she said, if we would do as much for Christ. She, at any rate, would not be found lagging, and in the middle of the year 1905 she sallied forth, taking with her a boy of twelve years named Item, who read English well, and a place called Aikotobong, some five and a half miles inland, she formed a school in the nucleus of a congregation. I trust, she said, that it would be the first of a chain of stations stretching across the country. The old chief is pleased. He told me that the future, the mystery of things, was too much for him, and that he would welcome the light. The people are to give Etim food, and I will give him five shillings a month for his mother out of my store. The lad proved an excellent teacher and disciplinarian, and gathered a school of half a hundred children about him. Soon she was again in the thick of building operations, and for a time was too busy even to write. Slowly, surely, Aikotobong became another center of order and light. Officials who ran in upon her from time to time said it was like coming on a bit of Britain, and the governor who called one day declared that the place was already too civilized for her. Much to her joy, there was a forward movement also on the part of the church. The mission council had not put aside its decision to make Aitu a medical base, and had been pressing the matter upon the foreign mission committee in Scotland, which also recognized the value of her pioneer work and the necessity of following it up and placing it upon a proper basis. It was finally agreed to carry out the suggestion. Dr. Robertson from Creektown was transferred to Aitu to take oversight of the work on the creek. A new mission house and a hospital were planned, and a motor launch for the creek journeys was decided on. For the launch, the students of New College Edinburgh made themselves responsible, and they succeeded in raising a sum of nearly 400 pounds for the purpose. The hospital and dispensary and their equipment was provided by Mr. A. Kemp, a member of the Braid United Free Church Edinburgh, an 
and admirer of Miss Slessor's work, and at his suggestion, it was called the Mary Slessor Mission Hospital. When the news came to her, she wrote, It seems like a fairy tale. I don't know what to say. I can just look up into the blue sky and say, Even so, Father, in good and ill, let me live and be worthy of it all. It is a grand gift, and I am glad for my people. Thus relieved of Aitu, she established herself at Okotobong. But she was again eager to press forwards, and wished to plant a station some fifty miles further on. It was to pace faster than the church could go, and had neither the workers nor the means to cope with all the opportunities she was creating. It is a striking picture, this, of the relentless little woman, ever foraging her way into the wilderness, and dragging a great church behind her. She had been amused at the idea of riding a bicycle, but she would have tried to fly if she could thereby have advanced the cause of Christ, when Mr. Charles Partridge, the district commissioner of Aikot Ikpen, presented her with a new machine of the latest pattern, directly from England, she at once started to learn. Fancy, she wrote, an old woman like me on a cycle. The new road makes it easy to ride, and I am running up and down and taking a new bit in a village two miles off. It has done me all the good in the world and I will soon be able to overtake more work. I wonder what the Andersons and the Goldies and the Eggerleys will say when they see we can cycle twenty miles in the bush. The commissioner had also brought out a phonograph with him, and she was able to speak into it. She recited in Efik the story of the prodigal son, and when the words came forth again, the natives were electrified. Does not that open a possibility, she said, for carrying the gospel message into the bush? Her work of patient love and faith in the creek saw fruit towards the end of the year 1905, when the two churches at Ekana Obayo and Aseng were opened. A special meeting of presbytery was held in the district, and eight members were present at the ceremonies. At Ekana Obayo, the Reverend John Rankin accepted the key from Chief Onoyam in the name of the presbytery, and handed it to Miss Slusser, who inserted it into the lock and opened the door. There was an atmosphere of intense devotion, and Mr. Ware preached from the text, There is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The collection was over five pounds. Boarding their canoe again, the party proceeded to Aseng and were met by crowds of people. Flags floated everywhere, and they passed under an arch of welcome. When the new native church, larger than even that at Ekana Obayo, came into view, surrounded by well-dressed men and women and children, words failed the visitors from Calabar. Again, Mary opened the door, and again the building was unable to hold the audience. Mr. Rankin preached from, To you is the word of the salvation sent. The collection was watched with astonishment by the visitors. It was piled up before the minister on the table, and bundle after bundle of rods followed one another, coming from those outside as well as those inside, until the amount reached twenty pounds, a remarkable sum from a people who were still heathen, but who were eager to know and learn about God and the right way of life. The visitors looked at one another. It is wonderful, they said. Surely it is of God. Ma was pleased, but not surprised. She knew how the people were crying for the light and how willing they were to give and serve. After the meeting, the people would not depart, and she and Mr. Ware addressed them outside. On the party returning to Akanaobayo, an evening service was held, and wrote one of them, The night closed down on as happy a group of missionaries as one could imagine. It was grand, said another, the best apologetic for Christianity I ever saw. Some weeks later, the church at Okpo, where Jean had been teaching the women and girls, was opened in the view of hundreds of people, who contributed a collection of seven pounds. Not all the natives regarded these strange goings with equanimity. At Akana Obayo, some of the chiefs were so alarmed that they left the town in the belief that misfortune would come upon them on account of the church. But when they saw the people throwing away their charms and flocking to the services, and no harm befalling them, they returned. They were very angry when Ono Yom put away his wives. He made ample provision for them, and took back as his one consort a twin mother whom he had discarded. By and by came a fine baby boy to be the light of his home. 
Akane, Ohio, became a prohibition town, and on Sundays a white flag was flown to indicate that no trading was allowed on God's Day. Chapter 8. The Problem of the Women One of the most baffling of West African problems is the problem of the women. There is no place for them outside the harem. They are dependent on the social system of the country, and helpless when cast adrift from it. They have no proper status in the community, being simply the creatures of man to be exploited and degraded. His laborer, his drudge, the carrier of his kernels and oil, the boiler of his nuts. A girl child, if not betrothed by her guardian, lacks the protection of the law. She can, if not attached to some man, be insulted or injured with impunity. There was no subject which had given Mary so much thought, and she had long come to the conclusion that it was the economic question which lay at the root of the evil. It seemed clear that until they were capable of supporting themselves and subsisting independently of men, they would continue in their civility and degradation, a prey to the worst practices of the bush, and a strong conservative force against the introduction of higher and purer methods of existence. Enlightened women frankly told Miss Lesser that they despaired of ever becoming free from the toils of tradition and custom, and that there seemed no better destiny for them than the life of the harem and the ways of sin. It was a serious outlook for those who became Christians, about whom she was the most concerned, and she would not leave the matter alone. Her active mind was always moving amongst the conditions around her, considering them, seeing beyond them, and suggesting lines of improvement and advancement. And in this case she saw that she would have to show how women could be rendered independent of the ties of a house. In Calabar, Christian women supported themselves by dressmaking, and much of their work was sent up-country, and she did not wish to take the bread out of their mouths. Gradually there came to her the idea of establishing a home in some populous city center, where she could place her girls and other twin mothers, waifs or strays, or rather Christians, unable to find a livelihood outside the harem, and where they could support themselves by farming industrial work. A girls' school could also be attached to it. Two principles were laid down as essential for such an institution. It must be based on the land, and it must be self-supporting. She did not believe in homes maintained from without. All native women understood something of cultivation and the raising of small stock, and their efforts could be chiefly engaged in that direction, as well as in washing and laundering, baking, basket-making, weaving, shoemaking, and so forth. Machinery of a simple character run by water power could be added when necessary. In the view of the uncertainty of her own future and the opening up of the country, she wisely held back from deciding on a site until she knew more about the routes of the government roads and the possible development of districts. She wanted virgin land and good water power, but she also desired what was still more important, a ready and sufficient market for the products. In her journeys into the interior of Ibibo, she was constantly prospecting with the home in mind, and once a chief who thought he had found a suitable site took her into a region of more utter solitude than she had ever experienced in all of her wanderings, and where a path had to be cut for her through the matted vegetation. Not one of her guides would open his lips, while they feared the wild beasts and reptiles, they feared still more the spirits of the forest, and they remained silent in case speech might betray them to these invisible presences. Being a European, she could not, according to the law of the land, buy ground, but she proposed to acquire it in the name of Jean and the other girls, and then give the mission a perpetual interest in it. In the report of her work on the creek, which Miss Adams induced her to write at this time, in the shape of a personal letter to herself, and which appeared in the record, and was characterized by masterly breaths of outlook and clear insight into the conditions of the country, she made reference to the project, saying, The expenditure of money is not in question. I am guarded against that by the express command of the committee. I shall only expend my own, or that of my personal friends, or what my personal friends give me. Chapter 9. A Christmas Party 
With the few white men in the district, she was very friendly. They were chiefly on the government staff and included the surveyors on the new road. Most of them were public school men, and some, she thought, were almost too fine for the work. Life, she said, is definitely harder for these men than for the missionary. But they never complain. They work very cheerfully in depressing surroundings, living in squalid huts and undergoing many privations, doing their bit for civilization and the empire. And they are all somebody's barons. She won them by her sympathy, entering into their lives, appreciating their difficulties and temptations, and acting towards them as a wise mother would. Her age, she said, gave her a chance others in the mission had not, and she thought in the most tactful ways to lead them to a consideration of the highest things. Christmas tide, as a rule, came and went in the bush without notice, except for a strange tightening of the heart and a renew of old memories. But this year, 1905, the spirit of the day seemed to fall upon these lonely white folk, and they foregathered at Aikotobong and spent it in something like that of the home fashion. In a lowly shed which had no front wall, and the seats were made of mud, there were fewer than eight men. Officials, engineers, and traders from far and near sat down to dinner. They could have gone elsewhere, wrote Ma, but they came and held an innocent happy day with an old woman, whose day for entertaining and pleasing is over. There was no lack of Christmas fare. An officer of high standing had received his usual plum pudding from home, but as he was leaving on furlough, he sent it to Ma. A cake had come from Mrs. Isright, the dear lassie at Okoyang, and shortbread had arrived from Scotland, but there was not a drop of intoxicating drink on the table. After dinner, the old home songs and hymns, full of memories and associations, were sung, often tremulously, for each had loved ones of whom he thought. Jean, who had secured a canoe and come from Okpo, and the other children were present, and they sang an ephic hymn. And though Mary was the only Scot present, the proceedings were rounded off with an old Scottish song. I just lay back and enjoyed it all, she wrote. It is fifteen years since I spent a Christmas like it. Wasn't it good of my father to give me such a treat? I was the happiest one in the mission that night. If I could only win these men for Christ, that would be the best reward for their kindness. Next day, they sent her a Christmas card on a huge sheet of surveying paper with their names in the center. Miss Wright, along with Miss M.S., a new colleague, arrived on the 8th on a visit, and three of the public works officers spent the evening with them. Mary began to talk as if it were the last night of the year. Oh, said one of the men, we have another night in which to repent, Ma. Have we? she replied. I thought it was the last night, and I've been confessing my sins the past year. I'll have to do it all over again. These men asked the ladies to dine with them on New Year's night, the form of the invitation being, The Disgraces Three desire the company of the Graces Three to dinner this evening at seven o'clock, lanterns and hammocks at ten p.m. RSVP. In reply, Ma wrote some humorous verses. The dinner was given in the same native shed as before. As the table boy passed the soup, one of the men made as if to begin. Ma, who was sitting beside him, put her hand on his and said, No, you don't, my boy, until the blessing is asked. And then she said grace. After dinner, the barons, who had been sitting at the door in the light of a big fire, were brought in, and prayers were conducted by Mary. On that occasion, when Miss Ames was bidding her goodbye, she said to her, Lassie, keep up your pluck. These men were very afraid of the least appearance of cant, but they would do anything for Ma. When a few days later, in order to give an object lesson to the natives, she proposed an English service, they agreed, and one of them read the lessons, and another led the singing. A short time before, white men were unknown in the district.